It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 129, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today, Chris Jagger, is the owner and operator of Blue Fox Farm, an organic vegetable farm in the Applegate Valley of Southern Oregon. He is also the owner and head consultant for Blue Fox Agricultural Services, a full-service agricultural supply and consultation company focusing on ecological solutions for the modern farmer. Both his farm and his agricultural services use living soils as a foundation to scale farming operations efficiently and profitably. We discuss the changes Chris has seen in the organic and local marketplace and labor environment and how Blue Fox Farm has worked to downsize in response to those changes. Chris shares how he has worked to determine what makes money with a sensible approach to crop budget analysis. We also dig into how Blue Fox Farm is getting better crops on a smaller piece of land, the economics of scaling up and scaling down, salad mix production, and the mechanization and the choices that Blue Fox Farm has made around that. It's worth noting here that Chris rounds out his involvement with the agricultural community by hosting the Living Soils Symposium each March. The symposium is an interactive conference for farmers interested in regenerative farming techniques to exchange knowledge and gain insight in a peer-to-peer environment. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company. Founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. FarmersWeb.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com. Chris Jagger, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'd like to start off today, like we usually do, by having you tell us about Blue Fox Farm there in Applegate, Oregon. How many acres are you farming? What are things like in Applegate? What kind of crops you grow on and how are you selling them? Yeah, so uh, my wife Melanie and I have been here for, uh, this is our 15th season here. Um, we have uh, about 40 acres that we manage. Um, and we started at one acre and we've worked our way up. Um, this year, actually, we're farming considerably less acreage, uh, about 12 and a half acres. Um, we grow a range, um, like so many folks uh, doing what we're doing, we grow a range of just about everything, except for the stuff that doesn't make us any money. Um, and pretty much an A to Z, we start in March and usually go through almost Christmas time. And we um, have two properties that we farm on. We have our home property where everything is propagated. And then about five miles away, we have um, all of our growing acreage. So we have a piece that's 15 acres over there, another piece that we lease that's 17, and another piece that's six. So that's kind of the overview of what we're up to. Um, And then we sell uh, at uh, local area farmer's markets, uh, wholesale to some of the co-ops around the area, restaurants, and then we do some wholesale, wholesale distribution uh, through a regional distribution company. When you say you do some wholesale distribution, you're selling to a wholesale distributor. You're not doing the distribution yourself, right? Correct. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You just listed off a lot more than 12 and a half acres of rental ground for your vegetables. Yeah. 
why so much ground relative to the 12 and a half acres that you said you're actually farming in vegetables this year? Yeah. So there's a, that's a, that's a pretty long discussion, I guess, in some respects. Um, so we've been up to about 37 acres in actual production. That was about three years ago. And we're seeing the overall landscape change as far as labor availability, uh, market access, um, just the coming of age of organics. Um, and so we've tapered back over the last couple of years to a more manageable level that we can get the size of crew that we need to support it. Um, and luckily we have a lot of, uh, a lot of tools of mechanization that we've bought over the years as we were scaled up bigger, um, that allows us to, uh, work these smaller acreages, uh, more effectively and more efficiently now. So that's kind of a nice advantage of having been a little bit bigger and now we're scaling back, but we still have all these bigger scale uh, tools available to us. So American business would say that if you're not getting, if you're not growing, you're dying. Are you guys dying or are you, are you making smart choices about getting smaller? Um, well, I, I think that's, uh, that's debatable and to be seen, you know, I mean, there is, uh, I, I think that there's a massive shift happening right now um, in uh, our uh, agricultural and food-based systems. And I think organics has been insulated from it somewhat for a long time. Um, and now as we see organics coming of age, um, we're seeing a lot of consolidation happening, a lot of bigger, uh, like the big box store mentality jumping into organics. And so it's making, there, there is a disparity now between uh, the economy of scale that makes sense to be successful anymore. I mean, it, it, it's, it, there's a, like being very small scale and being very large scale. Um, there's these two areas that you can find success uh, in profitability. Um, and then there's this dead zone in between. Um, and there's always been a dead zone in between. Um, but we're just seeing that dead zone widen a little bit. So we're kind of on one of those edges right now, and we're trying to assess exactly uh, how we're going to approach this into the future. Um, and uh, as you probably know, and and so many of your listeners know, it's one of those things that as we're trying to figure out what the next step is, you have to keep going. You have to keep farming as well. So uh, it's been a very calculated move to scale back. Um, we've, seen all of these changes coming over the last three or four years and we didn't want to just wait and get the carpet pulled out from underneath us. So uh, we've, we've made these adjustments on the fly as we've been going and um, we're, we're doing okay right now, but uh, it's really our biggest challenge being labor anymore um, that we just kind of watch it unfold day to day and make adjustments on the fly. That's kind of how you have to roll. That labor's a, a really hard nut to crack, especially in an area like the one that you're in, uh, you guys are located kind of between Grants Pass and Medford down in Southern Oregon. So kind of just North of the California state line, but Medford's a mid-sized city, you know, Grants Pass isn't huge either. What is your source of labor in that area? Well, um, it's changed throughout the years. Um, when we first started farming, the world of internships were still very strong. Um, my wife and I both started as interns on farms um, in California and Colorado. Um, 
And so we kind of followed course. Once we started our farm, we, we worked with the intern world a lot through ATRA. And at that time, that was like the early stages of uh, the strength of the internet. Um, and so people were still mailing in uh, applications. And there was this, you know, there was that whole process of the finding an internship on a farm. And as time went on, we found that uh, there started being some labor disputes, not with us, but with other farms uh, here on the West Coast and uh, kind of started looking at the legality of internships. And so that was a real eye opener for the agricultural community out here. So um, instead of just waiting to, again, get the carpet pulled out from underneath us, we started looking at like, well, maybe that's not the right way to go. And so we started looking into hiring labor. Um, and so that came down to just putting the word out, uh, word of mouth. There have, there's always been a, a migrant labor workforce that passes through this area because of the orchards and vineyards. Uh, and so we tapped into that uh, network somewhat. Um, and so we just kind of found uh, whatever would work. And we're just starting to see those uh, access points for labor kind of drying up now, whether it's the work ethic of our younger uh, folks in our country that are, are shifting uh, away from wanting to do the work that we do. The minimum wage is going up. And so people are finding other jobs that are easier, that are paying much better um, because, you know, we're not, we're not subject to all the same uh, like uh, laws as far as other industries are with labor. Um, and, and we're just, well, and honestly, we're seeing a lot of the migrant workforce getting drawn into other realms. Um, and a lot of folks that like the uh, Latin based community, a lot of them um, are actually going back to their home countries now. And so we saw a large egress of, um, of those folks. So we had people that were working uh, with us that were from Mexico and elsewhere. Um, and a lot of them just went back because they had been here for four generations and they said, you know, we've saved enough money. I think we're going to go back home now. And so, and I totally understand that. Um, so a lot of the combination of all those things are definitely putting a, a damper on the labor force. So. I mean, those are some really interesting dynamics that you're talking about that don't really have anything to do with whether or not you guys are good employers. Totally. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we can, we've always thought of ourselves as being, uh, pretty, uh, uh, sharp minded about what we were doing. Um, I mean, we definitely got into this for an ideal and, uh, an ethical and moral, uh, approach to farming, but you also have to approach all of that with, uh, sustainability of, of economics in mind. And so we always knew we had to be good business owners and good planners um, and good record keepers. And you can do all of those things uh, perfectly. Um, but if you, there are certain, some variables that just are, are out of our control and, and labor is one of those in, a, in, in some respects. So uh, we've just had to learn how to adapt. And, you know, there's definitely some evenings that we're scratching our heads saying, man, what are, what are we going to do here? Um, and the answer maybe isn't immediately apparent. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting uh, time. As you've shrunk the farm from 40 acres down to 12 and a half acres of vegetable production, has that been a process of just, you know, shrinking the amount of everything that you grow? Or have you guys been cutting crops and, and trying to focus more on the, the crops that are bringing you lots of dollars? How, how have you gone about that process? 
Yeah, um, that's exactly uh, what we've done is not just, we haven't just shrunk the whole farm down. We've definitely adapted what crops we're growing. So um, I, I live for marketing. I love marketing because it's a real uh, illustration of what our culture is doing. Um, as far as you give out, uh, you, you say to the marketplace, hey, this is what I have to offer. And they respond back with like, yes, we want it or no, we don't. And so I pay a lot of attention to that uh, over the years. I've at farmer's markets, uh, when I'm retailing or, or wholesaling to our retailers, um, I just see what the marketplace wants. And so we've adapted the crops that are making good return for us, crops that don't take a lot of excessive amounts of labor, like hand labor, whatever we can do with uh, any of the machines that we have, we focus on that. Um, and then we have looked at uh, expanding into value-added markets. Something that we've done that a lot of other farms probably haven't done is we look at value-added markets that we don't process the, the vegetables into that value-added product. We just supply the vegetables to other friends or you know, business associates that are doing the value-added ourselves. And that really cuts back on our cost. Like one example is we have a hot sauce company that is based out of a restaurant in our area and their demand for uh, classically fermented hot sauces just keeps growing exponentially every year. And so we've found a way to grow the peppers and hot peppers on scale. We don't spend a lot of time trellising. Um, and then the neat thing that we do is I have the hot sauce uh, company uh, em uh, like employees and business owners, they come in and they actually do the picking of the peppers for us. So oh, we wow. grow the peppers, they come in and pick them, and then there's no cold because they know exactly what they want for their hot sauce. So they come in and pick all the peppers that they need um, and then process them. And then I sell them the peppers for a, a discounted rate. And then I'm also paying their labor. Um, as they're out in the field. So it's kind of this win-win situation. And we've found that that really um, makes things a lot more efficient as far as the bottom line goes. So it's it just ideas like that is what we're looking at. It's like, uh, we don't want to get defeated by the change of, of agriculture, but we, we want to be creative. I mean, that's what we are is we're farmers are living artists. As far as I'm concerned, um, we, we're, we're making art on the fly. Um, and so we just look at these things and say, well, how can we adapt? And so that's like one of those examples of what we're doing. Talking about shrinking the farm, choosing crops to grow where where the market is there. Have you also, you mentioned earlier that the, you don't grow veg that doesn't make you guys money. How are you determining what makes you money and what doesn't? Um, you know, it's the classic uh, crop budget analysis, um, just crunching the numbers. Uh, and we have a system set up that uh, gives us a baseline. So, so the classic problem with budget, uh, like crop budget analysis is it works great whenever you have one or two crops um, because it's really easy to figure out all your fixed costs and then your variable costs. But whenever you're growing, you know, 35 to 60 crops, it's always really challenging. It's like, well, how do I, how do I equate all this? So over the years, we've kind of come up with a uh, baseline number for all of those fixed costs. And we put that into our formula when we're calculating it. Um, and then, so it's just a, it, it's not, 
it's not perfect, but every time we run the numbers, it always comes out and, and seems pretty darn accurate to us. So we kind of have that baseline that we have that in, involves the, you know, the transplant costs and all that. And then the, the, the other costs that are crop specific, then we dial those in. So we, we just kind of look at those numbers um, and, um, and see how it pins out. But something else that we take into account that probably doesn't fit into that uh, crop budget analysis is the emotional sustainability of our workers. And so they're like, we used to grow tons of strawberries and every time that we got to the strawberries, we knew that our margins were getting tighter and tighter each year. But every time that we would go to pick strawberries, I could just see the, the, the morale of our crew just, you know, tank, just dip all the way down. And I started looking at it, I was like, man, is it really worth having my crew be really upset at, not necessarily at me, but just at, the, what we were doing and just have the, them be drained. Is it really worth that? So we always put that into, it's probably not formula based, but we put that into um, when we're trying to figure out whether those the crops are going to continue with us. We put that into play as well. It's just like, how, how does crew feel about it? Like are people amped about it? You know, like peppers are, peppers can be somewhat labor intensive, but everybody that's picking them, especially because it's the hot sauce company that's picking them, they, live for peppers and so their morale is always very high so we kind of that's how we weigh and and balance what what we're going to do with our crops and what kind of record keeping are you doing to support that crop specific cost analysis yeah so we have um we, we we're spreadsheet uh maniacs um so we we do as much as we can with spreadsheets but we're also not out there taking uh, data points for every single thing we do. We've been at this, you know, for, uh, Melanie and I have been farming together for about 20 years now. So we kind of know the, know the process and know the flow. And we've consolidated from about five spreadsheets down to one now. Um, and so it's just, uh, you know, uh, materials in and materials out kind of information. And it's all looped into our, our harvest records that we have. Um, and it also really has been uh, having these consolidated records has made our certification process, like when we're getting inspected, uh, a lot easier because there's a lot of data all on one sheet. Um, so that's the main way we track all of this info. Um, and um, and then we also something else that we've implemented in the last couple years that works really well is we have a email account set up that's just um, all of our record keeping that we do on the farm. So anybody that works here on the farm and has information that is of value, whether it's crop, uh, like crop observations or harvest data or what we've uh, sprayed on the fields as far as amendments or crop protectants or any of that kind of stuff, I just have any of the folks just email that address directly. And then we just have everything there. Um, so at the end of the year, whenever I go in and I'm trying to build out my, my um, amendment application sheet for my inspector, all the information's there and it's all organized by date, you know? And so that's been really helpful too, to track all of that info. Um, and almost everybody has a smartphone now on the farm. And uh, so, you know, you can send an email from anywhere. That would be a different address from the email address that I emailed you at to set up this interview. This is something that's dedicated just for a record keeping space. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's just a Gmail address that, um, anybody I've, I've had other farms do the same thing. I was like, yeah, just, uh, just call it like record keeping your name of your farm, you know, at gmail.com or something like that. Just something that everybody in house knows what it is. Um, and that's just solely for that and nothing else. So you said that you and Melanie have been farming together for 20 years, but you started farming at Blue Fox Farm in 2003. What was your background prior to coming and starting Blue Fox Farm? Yeah, so Melanie and I started um, farming in Santa Cruz in 1997. Um, She was at the UCSC um, studying agroecology. I had just come out of Alaska in the fish industry and we both had this uh, strong desire to figure out where our food came from. Um, and so once we met, we kind of realized that we were um, on this similar path. And as she was finishing up her studies there at UCSC, we were like, well, we want to keep doing this. How are we going to figure this out? We worked for the Molino Creek Collective, uh, which there were some of the first folks that did dry farm tomatoes. We worked with uh, Joe at Dirty Girl Farm for a bit, helping him out when he was first getting going. And then we both went the full season internship route. And so we ended up out in Colorado. Uh, She was uh, interning on a farm called Guidestone Farm. They were one of the first uh, legal raw milk dairies in Colorado through a uh, membership-based program. And she was interning on the uh, CSA garden space there. And then I worked for a farm uh, that was about 30 miles south of there called Pachamama Organic Farm. That was in Longmont. And we both worked there for a season and then went back to California for a year to, um, I built homes for a year just to save up some money. And then we were both offered a management position at Guidestone. And so she and I went back out to Guidestone and managed their garden space for another two seasons and got married there. So that was kind of our, how we got our, you know, our management chops working on farms. And then at that point we were married in 2002 and then we came out here and, and tried to figure out what we were going to do here and then uh, bought our property in 2003. What brought you to Southern Oregon? Happen chance, I think. Um, I don't really know. Uh, we still aren't really sure how we ended up out here. It was one of those things that we were looking to uh looking to buy land on the western slope of colorado but it was kind of out of our price range and melanie's dad had a friend uh at work down in los angeles that had mentioned about retiring up to medford and she and i had been through the ashland area in our travels over the years up and down the west coast um and we're like yeah that area looks pretty cool and then we kind of started investigating the applegate valley and it was uh a lot more affordable at that point in time and uh, we really analyzed what mark, what markets were here. Um, not just the farmer's markets, but the overall marketplace and said, is there a place for us to fit in here and talked with a lot of the elder farmers here and said, can we fit in here? Does it make sense for us to come in? And everybody was like, yes, please come here. We need more farmers. Um, so it just kind of fell into place and, um, you know, finding a property, um, even then was challenging because of all the constraints that we needed. Um, but we, we found this neat old uh, dairy uh, that was priced unbelievably well. Um, and something that people always ask me was like, how did you pull this off? You know, you're, you're poor young farmers. Like, how are you going to buy this place? And 
you know, the only way that we could have done it was the fact that Melanie's parents helped us out. Uh, they put the down payment on the property. Um, and I will be eternally grateful to them for doing that. And they, they looked at it this way. They said, you know, someday, whenever we pass on, we're going to leave you an inheritance of, of, you know, part of our estate or whatever. But at that point in your life, hopefully you don't need it. So why don't we put that money down now to help you guys get on this path of farming that you're so passionate about? Um, and I, I've always thought that that was amazing that they were able to do that for us um, because they saw our vision of what we were trying to accomplish. Um, and so they put that down payment and that was just what we needed to be able to then to start from the ground up. And, I, and we honestly did. We, uh, we saved money while we were managing Guidestone, uh, Guidestone's garden and saved enough for our first tractor and got out here and it was shoestring. I mean, it was just, and it was just Melanie and I, when we started and we were doing everything, uh, watering, planting, harvesting, doing markets, you know, and get up at three in the morning to start irrigation before we had to go to the market. You know, I mean, it was real shoestring and we just started building and, and making sure that we were just paying as we, as we went, we never took out loans uh, other than our mortgage and uh, just worked within our means. It was really important to us. Were you both full-time on the farm from day one? Uh, the first season, no. The first season, I was actually building my brother-in-law's house. because uh, uh, Melanie's sister and her sister's husband, uh, they uh, share this property with us as well. Um, so it is a, a true family affair. Um, they're not in farming, but they're, they're supportive of what we're doing. Um, and so I was building their house for them. And so that was kind of a neat thing where they had sold their house in San Diego and then the profits from that went to me to build their house, which then gave me money to put into the farm to get things going. So the first year I both farmed and built their house. And then, uh, Melanie and our good friend, um, uh, came out and ran the small garden space. I think we had an acre and a half or two acres that first year. And then the next year I said, man, we, I just have to take the leap, the leap of faith and just do this. So we had saved enough capital to make sure we had our costs covered for, I think it was about six months. Like regardless of what happened with the farm, we knew we were covered for six months. So that gave us a six month window to just really put the work in. And then how quickly did you guys scale up? Because you said, I mean, one acre in your first year, that seems like a pretty reasonable sized market farm for getting yeah. started, especially with the kind of experience that you guys were bringing to it. Um, but then how quickly did you scale up to that 40 acres? Yeah, so it went, uh, it went each subsequent year, it went uh, one, four, seven, twelve, 12. And then we were at 12 for two or three years. Um, and then when we bought our, uh, production piece, um, cause we were, there were some other leases that we had that we don't farm at all anymore. Um, but once we brought our, bought our production piece, then we were at like 15 for another year or something like that. And then, um, and then it was a pretty drastic jump. Once we got to 15, then I think the following, uh, the following two or three years, uh, we were above 20 acres in production. And then, we maxed out at 37 acres in actual production and we were there for just uh, two, like I think a year or two. And then we, we started tapering back because the marketplace kind of, kind of changed rapidly. It was mostly based on our wholesale experience. Um, 
there were some big box stores that kind of moved into the area and kind of swooped some business from our distributor and it kind of changed the game really quickly. So, um, so it was this, uh, I would say it was a gradual increase. And then we kind of got to this maintained level, um, uh, in the 20 to 20 to 30 acre range. And then we kind of peaked out for a, a single year. And if it had kept going, I mean, I, I don't know if we would have scaled up more, but I think we would have, um, kept at that like 35 to 40 acres. That, that was a nice, that was a nice scale to be at. Um, it was a big crew. I think we had 17 people on staff that year. I mean, with some, some of that being part-time folks, we probably had seven full-time people that year, something like that. When that marketplace shifted, did that happen while you had crops in the ground? Were you, were you left yep. with stuff out in the field? Uh, yeah, we were. Yes. Um, and some of it, I worked hard to find other outlets for it. Um, and some of it I just tilled under, you know, um, I'm not an opponent of tilling crops under, um, cause I'm always feeding the soil back anyway. I mean, that's what I've always said is that we're building our soil and the vegetables just happen to be a byproduct that allows us to continue feeding our soil. So I I'm okay with doing that. Um, and I think that some of the reason that we've been able to do things like that is because we don't have a lot of, uh, debt looming over our heads. Um, other than our mortgage, we pretty much own everything um, because we've paid as we've gone. And so that gave us the flexibility to just say, well, you know, it's the, the marketplace isn't there. So let's turn this under. We don't need to be managing this, this crop at this point, you know? And, and so that's what you do. And so you bought production land that was five miles down the road, right? Right. Okay. So I farmed land that was at a distance from my home farm. And that's hard. Yeah, it, it can be. Um, what we learned quickly was uh, I made sure that anything I needed both at home or at the other farm, uh, I had one of each at each spot. And here at home, because this was basically just where our propagation houses were and not really any production, um, that made it pretty easy to do that. And I kind of looked at it as I, I had to go home at the end of the day. And that was a good thing. Um, we have two kids, we have uh, two boys, they're uh, nine and seven. And so I make an effort to get out of there by, you know, five or five thirty each day. Um, and I learned really quickly to just let go of having to have everything be perfect and dialed in. Cause as you know, and everybody knows, that there's always a list of things to do on the farm and it'll still be in there in the morning. Um, of course I didn't let the time sensitive stuff, you know, get swept under the carpet, but there's always things that can be done later. Um, so, you know, we just, just figured it out and it, it's made me become a better farm manager too, is because if I, um, if I had a really loose system over there, I don't think it would be able to maintain with me being at home over here. Um, it's just, been the way that the perspective um, that I've taken on it, and it, it it hasn't really been too bad. So when you say that that you didn't have a loose system over there, I'm going to assume you had a tight system over there. What did that tight system look like? Was that a was that an ops a system of observation? Was it a system of record keeping? Was it just a system of of having a way that things work? Basically, I I worked hard to come up with. SOPs or standard operating procedures for how the farm works. So, you know, it's just, you take the framework of the farm 
and you reverse engineer. You say, this is the end result that I'm trying to get. How am I going to get back to you know, square one from, from the end result? And so every step of the way, you just build that out as far as, okay, um, with my irrigation, like, but you take each aspect of the farm and you break it down. So like irrigation is a really good one. So irrigation is on, is all on timers and irrigation, uh, also is how we do a lot of our fertility management through MAZI injectors into the system. So we don't have a lot of walking through the fields and spraying crops for foliar sprays. We inject it into our irrigation system, you know, just so efficiencies like that make the, the system work really well, having timers on everything. Um, that's one aspect. Um, I use the, I use the internet to my advantage a lot. Uh, so having, uh, having like a security camera on the, on the thermometer for the walk-in cooler so I can look at what the walk-in cooler is doing from a distance. Um, you know, just little ideas like that. I just tried to implement as many systems that I could to have redundancies so things wouldn't fail or if they did fail, I would know about it and could go back over. Um, and then just organizing our barn system and our wash and pack system into an efficient, um, uh, an efficient space and just having everything uh, have its own home. Yeah. Now, if if you mentioned all this to any of the folks that have worked with me in the past, you know, some people would laugh because they would say, well, you know, there's days where you look in there and you're like, oh my gosh, everything's in a, it's a state of disarray. But underneath it all, there is this framework that's there supporting it um, that you can kind of reorganize and clean up at the end of the day and, and start to start anew, you know, so it, it just, it's systems management. I mean, that's really what farming is. And it's something that I'm always really excited about is figuring out how to manage these systems in holistic manners that work for everybody. So, so it sounds like you've got the packing shed and your cooling facilities. Those are on, those are on the remote farm in the production space. Yep. Yep. Every, pretty much everything is over at the production farm, except for our propagation houses. And the only reason the propagation houses are still here is because that's my wife's realm. She's always taking care of the, the management of the propagation greenhouses. And she's here at home with um, our boys. And so it was just a way for her to keep touch with what's going on. Um, and then she does all the office work here too, out of our home office. So that kind of worked well to keep it at, at that. Um, if we were ever to hand that side of things off to say our farm manager or somebody else on, on the farm, then we'd probably consider moving the propagation houses over to the other farm as well. Again, you've talked about shrinking the farm. It still leaves a lot of land that you're not managing in vegetables. What are you doing with the rest of that land? Have you incorporated it into your vegetable rotation? Yeah. So, uh, a lot of cover cropping, a lot of bare fallow, um, a lot of trying to knock down the weed seed bank. Um, our fields were uh, dairy uh, pasturing land for years. So as you know, that um, cows are awesome processors of green matter, but they also pass a lot of weed seeds through. Um, and so there is a lot, there's a large weed seed bank out there. And so that's something that we've had to manage over the years and trying to figure out how to do that. Um, and so, um, and that's through cover crop management and just like bare fallow management. Um, and, um, but 
yeah, it's, it's really nice actually to have more space to be able to work with. Um, and we're kind of spreading some of our beds out too. So if there's a section that we want more airflow for something to stay controlled, powdery mildew or downy mildew management, you can put, you know, space between the beds where it used to be, we just like have to cram everything in there. There's a lot of things that we used to do three rows to a bed that we're doing one or two rows to a bed now. So, um, and in some respects, we're learning that we're getting better crops out of the field by not just trying to have that high density planting. Um, so it's, it's neat to see how these changes, I mean, you can look at these downscaling as like a, oh man, this is a total bummer, but I've really looked at it as like a, well, what can we learn from this and what can we gain from this and what can we do to become better farmers because of this? And and, and I think that just having all this space really is, it's, it's pretty awesome. Tell me a little bit about the climate there in Applegate, Oregon. It's somewhat similar to Colorado. Um, it's somewhat of a semi-arid desert. Um, we get around 30 inches of rain a year um, in a good year. I think more normal is probably 17 to 20. Um, this last year we had, I don't know how much we had, but we had a ton, uh, which was great. Um, but all that rain comes in the, in the off season. So most of that rain is from November through say April. Um, so during the summertime, uh, you never have rain. So we're fully dependent on irrigation um, out of the river that runs by the farm and daytime temperatures, range in the middle of the summer like right now we're in the uh low to mid 90s we'll definitely move up into the hundreds every once in a while it's rare that we'll hit over 100 for more than three or four days but it can happen and then the humidity here is very low um and so that means the night times cool off considerably and so that's really nice too um from a crop growth standpoint uh it's funny people up north in the northern part of oregon are always surprised because they can get certain crops before we can. And they're like, well, you're so much further south. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you're, you have so much more humidity. Your nighttime temperatures don't dip. And so your plants don't really stop growing. Ours will definitely, they stall out at night and then they start back up again in the morning. So, um, but it, just the way that the climate is here, it gives us, it gives us amazing control over our crops. There's a lot of seed producers around here, small scale seed producers and, that's one of the reasons why they're so successful is because they can control the irrigation fully. And the latitude that we're at um, has this angle of incidence for whatever reason, it, things just grow like bonkers here. So we just get massive growth. Once we get to that sweet spot in the late well, early summer, I guess, actually, like usually by June 15th, it's like June 15th to August 15th, you put anything in the ground and it, it grows so fast. It's amazing. Um, so that's really nice because you can roll succession after succession of things uh, through and, and just have a constant supply for your marketplaces. Chris, with that, we're going to stop, take a break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Chris Jagger from Blue Fox Farm in Southern Oregon. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. When you're growing transplants, 
all of the investments you've made in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead depend on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And if you're an organic grower, you're probably using a media based on compost, and you should be looking for the best compost. Most organic potting soils have two basic parts, the compost and everything else. At Vermont Compost Company, Carl Hammer and his crew are very intentional about the inputs they use in their compost. While they're making use of waste products, waste disposal is not their primary goal. Ingredients are sourced consciously and with the end in mind. The same goes for the everything else part. Like the best in art, everything in Vermont compost potting soils has a purpose, whether it's the chips of ocean blue granite or the kelp that provides micronutrients and a little smell of the ocean. Fully composted compost, top quality ingredients, and a real sense for the art and science of plant production, combined with a real commitment to organic growing professionals to create a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com. Support is also provided by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management. Farmers Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online and also from those that order by phone or email. Use Farmers Web to generate a product catalog for buyers, allow buyers to view your real time availability online, and create harvest lists and packing slips for your orders. Farmers Web helps you inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and more, while helping you keep track of special pricing and customer information. You can also download detailed financial reports. Farmers Web offers a free account type and a flat monthly fee on paid plans. You can pause, cancel, or switch plan types at any time. Check out a demo video and Farmers Web's guide to working with wholesale buyers at FarmersWeb.com. All right, and we're back with Chris Jagger from Blue Fox Farm in Applegate, Oregon. So, Chris, you you talked about that you guys have done a lot of mechanization on your farm, in part because you you grew up to such a large size that you you scaled up the equipment that you needed to do that, and now you've still got it now that you're running at 12 and a half acres. And I want to talk some about, about what you've mechanized and, and how that's gone, but I'm also curious if you were targeting a 12 and a half acre farm, would you have the degree of mechanization that you have now? Could you have afforded that? And would it still make sense if you hadn't invested in it when you were scaling up to a larger scale than where you're at? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, you know, I talked about not being in debt and how important that was for us to pay as we have gone. Um, that was something that we did because of where where the industry was at that time when we got into it. Now, if I was to get into it today, 2017, if I was 21 years old again, um, our world and our economy and our agricultural system have all changed. And I think that if I was to do it all over again, I probably would take some loans out. Um, I would make sure that I had a marketplace before I did that. But I would take some loans out and I probably would mechanize from the get-go. If if somebody asked me, you know, what should I do? I would say, here's a punch list of the tools that you need. Let's think of a system and a and a time frame that you can buy those into the farm. But I I, I just think that mechanization is is honestly the key, even on a small scale. And, and a lot of that comes from the fact that the I just don't think that the labor pool is there for us or is going to be there for a lot of other folks in the future. So um, as much as you can figure out how to mechanize, um, 
I think that that's a real advantage. And I, and I think a lot of people are scared of mechanizing because they feel that it takes away from the artisanship of this craft. But I really feel like when you mechanize, it allows you to spend more time with the most important thing, which is the crops. So um, as we mechanized, I was like, man, I have so much more time now to walk the field, to do crop walks, to do crop observations. Um, and, and so it just re, uh, refocused where my energies went instead of just being out there being like, man, I've got to get this bed of carrots weeded by hand today. Um, I was, uh, I was out in the field walking around saying, oop, I've got some aphid pressure here, or I've got, you know, this pressure there, or man, we need to harvest this, this next week. So, um, I, I definitely would mechanize. Where did you guys start with mechanization? Um, with mechanization, we started, uh, with the classic, uh, ACG, the Alice Chalmers G, uh, tractor. Um, and we actually were uh, one of the first to do the electrical conversion. Uh, we don't have that tractor with us anymore because we actually scaled up to a level that it didn't really work for us to keep with the electric tractor. We needed more hours in the field than it can give us. So we started with an ACG and a basket weeder and a sweep and just really built up from there. Um, and then we got a Farmall Super A that we got uh, some finger weeders for. Um, the finger weeder story is kind of an interesting one. That was before finger weeders were really seen here in the U.S. And it was the early days of YouTube. And I just happened to be searching all around for for tools and equipment. And I saw this company Crest out of uh, Europe. And I actually used Google Translate at that time to order them directly from Germany, um, which was always a little terrifying. Like I'm wiring this money to this unknown company in Germany. Let's hope they show up. Um, and, you know, eight weeks later, there they were. Um, so we, we used the finger weeders. Um, and then honestly, the game changer for us has been flame weeding. Um, once we, not a walk behind flame weeder, but a tractor mounted flame weeder that we built in house. And we use the red dragon burners, the, the liquid propane burners. And once we got the flame weeding, uh, like stale bed prep down, that was the game changer for us. That cut our labor costs by 35, 40%, um, as far as hand labor costs. So, um, and so that, that was the big one for us. Just simply because you eliminated the hand weeding. Yep, exactly. It looks like you guys do a lot of salad mix production. Can you tell me about the system that you're using for that? Sure. Um, it's been pretty standard in all the years that we've been here. We've changed the varieties over the years and kind of fine-tuned those. Um, but we do a five-row system. Uh, we plant uh, or we seed uh, every week. Um, and over the years, we've gone from planting in blocks uh, which we would do each variety within its own block. And so you'd have a, a block of red and then a block of the green leaf and then a block of the tango, you know, the, or the Lola Rosa or whatever. And then you'd have the spicy green block. And then a few years ago, we realized that it was a lot more efficient to just plant in rows. Like, so each, so now we have 10 varieties of lettuces and greens. And we plant those in um, in two beds that each bed has five rows to it. 
Um, so each row is a different variety. And we've never done the pre-mixed solid mix seed um, just because we, if we have disease or, or um, there's certain varieties that the cucumber beetles love over others, when we saw that we would have the pre-mix, it's really hard to cut around that. So it's nice if you have the specific varieties in their own row, because if you have that row is no good anymore, you can just skip it and go on to another one. Um, as far as harvesting goes, we have tried everything under the sun um, and we are back to knife harvesting everything. Um, and we do a cut and cut again kind of process. So we'll generally get three to four cuts off of a, off of a succession, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, and we definitely don't grow baby greens. We grow what we call uh, adolescent greens. Um, we let them get a little bit bigger. We feel like they have better flavor. They don't just taste like watery vegetable matter. Um, they've got better flavor and it just allows us to cut longer. We've sold bulk salad mix. We've sold clamshells. Um, we've sold at the farmer's market pre-bagged and bulk and all that. Now we're kind of to the point that we're just selling bulk salad mix at the farmer's markets and to some uh, local grocery stores. And that really is due to the fact that the big organic salad mix producers have really pushed hard to drop their prices down to the point that they're on a scale that, that they can, they can sell it out on the floor for basically what we'd have to wholesale it for to make any money. So um, we've definitely scaled back on our salad mix production um, because we're up against that, that uh big box mentality now um but we still pride ourselves on having a, a good quality mix it is such a hard thing when you think about how the organic industry has developed and and you know those specialty crops like salad mix that used to be the province of smaller growers you know when i worked at harmony valley farm here in wisconsin in, in 1993 we were selling salad mix wholesale for six dollars a pound and I think that when I buy salad mix at retail at the food co-op now, I think I pay seven. There's nothing else that I can think of that has, has undergone or has failed to undergo a similar inflationary pressure. The prices have just, they've stayed the same forever or if not gone down. Yep. It's, it's so interesting to see that food is still the cheapest thing that we have going. And, you know, it's a, it's one of those most challenging things where you have customers that will balk at a 25 cent difference yet still pay $5 for a latte, you know, and I, I mean, I'll pay $5 for a latte too, but you know, it's just, it's so interesting to just see that the, that the base of our, our nutrition, you know, is something that doesn't have more value to it. And I haven't been able to figure out how to, how to change that. And I'm not, I'm not sure that's a, that's a, that's a big, that's a whole nother show right there. Yeah. If not a, if not a whole nother, whole nother year's worth of shows. I mean, that's just, it's, it's, it's like, it's yeah. so fundamental. And, and the funny thing is, Chris, and I don't know if you experience this, but sometimes I'll be in the store and I'll go, you know, it'll be some product, you know, organic stuff. And I'm like, I'm not going to pay that for the organic. And then I'm like, wait, 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 this is me that I'm talking about here. I'm going to pay that. But you know, I, I sometimes have some price shock too. And I've been in, I mean, I'm a true believer. I've been in the industry for 25 years, almost all my life now. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting, you know. Um, and it, it, it's one of those things too that it's uh, like something that I've I've 
moved on to is like, well, what is that next step? Like we've worked so hard to get the organic industry to the point of where it's, it's no longer an infant, you know, it's now a teenager, I guess. Um, and how do we take that consumer education to that whole next level? And, and I believe it's nutrient dense crops and it's, uh, high bricks crops, all of those kind of things. But man, that's a whole nother realm of education. Like it feels like people are just starting to understand organics and we're going to hit them with like, okay, now you have to learn this whole world too, you know? And so, um, it's, it's a big challenge and I'm really curious to see how things develop over the, the next 10 to 15 years for, for food, um, in our country. I noticed on your Instagram feed that you guys are using a yeoman's plow or a key line plow for your primary tillage. Would you tell me about how you go about your tillage and, and bed shaping and, and are you guys on a raised bed system there? Yeah. So, um, that's another thing that has evolved over the years. Um, our, our main setup goes like this. Um, if we take it from a cover crop standpoint, like let's say we have an overwintered cover crop and oats and peas is usually what we do in the winter. And it's up around four to six feet tall by the time we're ready to take it down. Um, we generally will flail mow that and then, depending on the field, we will use a moldboard plow. And I know that that sometimes is a curse word in the world of, of soil fertility. Um, but it's, a, it's again, one of those things, it's not the tool, it's how you use it. Um, and so we've always really focused a lot on using the moldboard to go just below the root zone of the cover crop and not down into the substrata layers of soil. And so we'll just flip that, that top layer onto itself let that break down. Um, and then we'll go through and disc the ground. Um, and once the ground is disced and ready to roll, we'll usually go through with a yeoman's plow. And we have a yeoman's plow that has three shanks, but we generally only use two shanks on it. And we will rip as deep as we can. We can usually get down to about 20 to 22 inches. Um, and we use a pretty high horsepower tractor for that. Um, so we will usually rip the field um, and we generally rip right over where our beds are going to be. So that pass with the yeoman's the yeoman's plow is set up on the same spacing that we're going to be, uh, we're going to be bedding up, um, which is a four foot bed top. Um, so we'll rip where the beds are going to be. And then we go through and we pre lift the beds with the a bed shaper that we've built in house. And the bed shaper is basically, uh, kind of a evolution of design off of, I think originally it was Jim Leap who used to be at UC Santa Cruz. He had this bed recycler, which was basically a three point disc that then had some extra sweeps and, uh, and disc killers involved into it. And then a shaper on the back. So we've kind of designed our own system for that, um, that we'll use that to pre-list the beds. Um, and then we go through and irrigate that whole area if, if we need to, depending on the time of year. Um, and that will get that initial weed uh, seed flush to come up. And then we'll come back and pre shape the beds with the bed shaper as well. Um, and then do another light irrigation to get that second weed flush to come up. And then when that second weed flush comes up, then we'll go through and flame weed those beds and then ideally then you plant into it, whether it's direct seed or transplant the next day. 
Um, and so the bed shaper does make a raised bed for us. It's about, oh, it's probably a, depending on the soil conditions, it's between six and nine inch raised bed. Um, and once we got our raised bed system down, man, that's made our cultivation with the tractors so much easier because it, when you have a raised bed, you have that much more um, clearance or, or um, I don't know how you say that, like more more rise and fall with the with the implements to fine tune like how much soil you're moving and how much uh, uh, how aggressive your weeding action is. So that's our basic system. Once you've got the beds made and you've done your you've done your pre-emergent weed control, how are you getting how are you doing the seeding or the transplanting so that you make sure that that those things are are nice and centered on the top of the bed? Yeah, so the bed shaper on the back, we have the shaping pan and it has three very simple fingers coming off the back that mark where our rows are. And so we have a three row system. Um, so whether we're planting one, two or three rows, there's always three marks there on the top of the bed and those are spaced 16 inches apart. Um, and so then we direct seeding, we still do it the old fashioned way. We push a Jang or an earthway seeder. Um, really like the Jang seeder, but there's certain crops that I just can't effectively seed with it still. So we still use the earthway, even though it's kind of the bane of everybody's existence for whatever reason. Um, I'm hoping that uh, is earthway, one of your sponsors. Um, no, they're not. No. And uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a okay. $79 seeder, right? I mean, you get what you pay for. Right. Yeah, exactly. But it works, you know, it does well. And we, uh, custom fabricated plates for that, for specific crops that we need. So we, we direct seed with, with, those two seeders. Um, I've looked into getting tractor mounted seeders. If we had stayed at a higher acreage, I would have definitely bought a, a vacuum seeder at some point in time. Um, that works for us. And then we have a water wheel transplanter. It's a three row water wheel transplanter and uh, like a rain flow. Um, and we transplant everything with that. Um, and we have three seats on the back, even though a lot of times we only use the two and just have people switch off planting that third row. So, um, yeah, and that once we got the, the water wheel transplanter, that was another one of those, like, Oh my gosh, why didn't we do that earlier kind of thing? Because the amount of, uh, wear and tear on our crew's body that that helped save was amazing. Just the, how always being hunched over out there. And it's just, it's just so much more efficient and people are so much happier to be able to just transplant off the seats in the back. When we got a water wheel transplanter at Rock Spring Farm, I was I was a little disappointed at first because it didn't actually make us faster at transplanting. You know, when we took the, you know, you've got the driver and a and a spotter behind, and then the people riding on the machine, we could actually transplant by hand just as fast as we could with the water wheel. But what we discovered was the big difference was that at the end of the day, people weren't exhausted. They were ready to go do it again the next day. Yep. That's a, and that's one of those hidden costs that I, I think that we don't always look at as farmers because we're just looking at the hard costs, you know, and it's like, man, I, I put so much value in human resource management, you know, and, and because without people, you've you got nothing, you know, it's just you. Um, and so those are, those are the little details that I've observed and, and we've made adjustments over the years. It's like, how can we help our crew be healthier and better and more efficient and effective at what they do and, and still be smiling and happy at the end of the day. So that's, that's huge. 
So that was actually something that that attracted me when somebody made the recommendation to get you on the show. That person said that you get, you know, says that, uh, you know, not only is he a great talker, but he gets himself and his crew home at a reasonable hour every day. And it really, you know, it struck me. I mean, that obviously speaks to that speaks to a whole set of of values. How do you go about that? I don't know. That's I mean, that's a really open ended question, but I'm just going to say it. How, how do you go about that? Um, just making sure that we get people home. Well, I mean, it, it comes down to knowing the workload, you know? Um, I think that a lot of farmers are gluttons for punishment. Um, and so, and, and we love plants. And so we always think we should plant more, you know, and I've really paid attention to like, if we plant this much more, is it really going to make us that much more money? You know? And, and I, so that's one of the, that's one of the biggest things is making sure that we're just not planting more to plant more. And cause I've seen it whenever we've, we've taken it that extra step and you just see the crew, just the morale just shift, you know? And I've found too, that over the years, like, yeah, you can be out there for 17 hours a day, but like, you're going to have people burn out. I mean, we have people burn out whether we're out there eight hours or 17 hours, you know? So we just have to, have to be mindful of who the workforce is. And even if we don't like where the workforce is going overall with work ethic, because that's something that I hear from a lot of farmer friends. And I, I feel the same thing. We're like, are we just getting to be crotchety old farmers or is the workforce's uh, work ethic changing? And I think, it, I really think that work workforce's ethic is changing and it's due to a, a slew of things, but, but you have to, whether that's right or not, you still have to make adjustments according to that. So whether you like it or not, you have to say, this is what I'm working with. How can I do it to make sure that these people are healthy and happy, you know, the best. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to have, you're not going to have bad days and it's not going to sometimes just suck, you know, like that's the reality of it too. You know, that's, that's life and that's farming is that you have the ups and downs, but it's just really paying attention to what, where people's energy levels are. And the other thing is, is that I think my crew knows that anything that they do is, is something that I would also do myself. And so I make sure that even if I can't always be out there, I make sure that I am out there some. So like right now I'm, we have a pretty small crew um, and I'm still the one that's cutting all the head lettuce every harvest day. And so even though I've got a million other things I could be doing and I could train one of the folks to cut head lettuce, it's something that I know that I can say, like, it, it's a tedious job because it's, uh, we're in the heat of the summer. And so a lot of the lettuces will bolt and a lot of them will get um, tip burn or whatever. And so you really have to pay attention. So um, I think it's more efficient for me to just cut it. But it's also a sign to my crew of like, hey, I'm out there still, you know, like I'm out there slugging boxes and crates out of the field, just like you. And I, I think that really goes a long way. I think that makes people respect you. And, um, and it's not like I'm doing it just for show either. It's, I'm doing it because I got to get the product out of the field, you know, but it's, it, 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 those kind of like little, little things, they, they make a huge difference. You talked a couple of times about, about observing and, and managing the energy level of your crew. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, a lot of my farming, uh, farming ethic or farming structure 
comes from a background in um, an interest in uh, permacultural-based systems. And I think that the term permaculture gets thrown around a lot very loosely. Um, but really, it comes down to a way to manage systems holistically. And a lot of times, people think that that's just managing physical systems holistically, like how are you going to get your cows from point A to point B in a holistic manner, or how are you going to, you know, uh, cut down on your carbon footprint to make sure that the system is more regenerative and all of that. But well, I, I, I'm really more intrigued in the humanistic and social aspect of permaculture. Like how can we holistic man, holistically manage people? And that means take into account that every human is an individual and that it's not just a number. And so you look at Joe or Sally and say, what are their strengths and what are their individual weaknesses and how can I plug them into the right place here on the farm? And um, the other side of that is I try to make sure that I keep my emotions out of that decision making. And that's something that I've not always been good at, but I'm getting better over the years. And so by that, I mean, I try to look at people's strengths and weaknesses, plug them in where they are, and then know that um, if they don't like that, that they're going to have to trust that I'm putting them in that, that role um, for a reason, because I've assessed it from my standpoint. Now, I still mess up sometimes. And that's something else that I'm really open to is saying, oh, I messed up. I should have put you over here. Um, but it's just it's just looking at the nuances of human beings, because that's the one thing that we're coming to this point in our society where everything is mechanized and replicated and similar and um, mass produced and commoditized. And the one thing that I am a big fan of is not commoditizing people. Um, and that's the art of life, I think, is that, that each person is an individual. And so we can use that individuality to really create an awesome farm-based system that is, is um, working like no other farm would. Like every farm is an individualistic thing. You know, you can't commoditize a farm. You can't really franchise a farm. I mean, you can franchise a farm, but from the, the standpoint that if I'm trying to do things, it's like, how, how is my farm different um, this year? And how do I tune it in this year to make it work the best? And then the next year, it's, I, I always know it's not going to be the same at all. Um, so the, just those kind of details, is, that's, that's what's going through my mind every day when I'm also trying to manage the mechanical aspects of my farm. Um, and, and so that's, but that's the beauty of being a human being is that you can like, manage things from a scientific standpoint and like your right mind. And then you can also manage things from an artistic standpoint, you know, the left sided, left side of your mind. I always feel like managing things, you know, quote unquote scientifically is, I don't know, it's easier, right? I mean, when you're, you're trying to be an artist, you know, you really, what you're talking about with employees is paying attention to, to the differences that puts a lot more work on you. I mean, I know that just from dealing with, I mean, I know that from dealing with employees, I think about it, you know, with dealing with livestock, um, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to, to just say, okay, crew, we're all going to go do this thing. Now it's a lot different if you've got, if you've got a crew of seven or eight people and you're trying to figure out where each person fits and to match up those strengths in, in every aspect 
of their job or of their workday. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, I mean, and it's not like every move I'm like, okay, now how, how am I going to fine tune this for this person? It's more of an overall all encompassing thing of like, Oh, this person's really good with, uh, attention to detail. So of course I'm going to put them in the wash and pack area. Um, and this person is a beast that they can just go out and they, they can run a weed eater all day and be content with it as long as they can have their headphones on and listen to Slayer. You know, it's like that kind of, that's more of the overall um, way that I assess the energetics on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. We still have to get the nuts and bolts done. Um, and so there's a, it's a macro versus a micro um, observational kind of thing. Um it's like you have to decide how microscopic you want to get with it. Um, but, but you know, it, it's, it, and yeah, it takes more work, but that's kind of my job, you know, is like being the, the owner, you know, like I, I never, I rarely blame other people on the farm. If something doesn't go right, it's usually me. It's all on me. Like if so-and-so didn't do this, well, it's because I didn't set them up properly to do that. Now, if they just mess up, and they just say, well, I'm not going to go harvest those carrots and they walk off. Then of course that's their fault. But if I say, Hey, go harvest carrots and they go out there and they harvest out of the wrong bed. Well, it's my fault because I didn't say, Hey, harvest carrots out of bed E8 and start halfway down. Look for, you know, this, this market marker, you know, as the, that's why you should start picking there and then only pick the ones that are over some size in diameter, you know, like those are the two differences. It's like, I, I blame myself for not setting things up properly instead of blaming my employees. You know, that's my job as the farm owner. And sometimes I think people that are running things are just looking to get to that point where they can step back and not have to, not have to put in the, as much effort. They're like, okay, now I've made it. Now I'm just the owner, manager, boss or whatever. And now I've got my crews just going to do it. And they're going to figure it out. If they don't figure it out, I'm going to blame them for it. And I've never approached it like that. Like I've always said, like my job should get harder every year in a certain respect, because I'm just trying to make sure that the, the well-being of my crew is there. You know, that's, that's everything to me. And, you know, I found, and it took me way too long to figure this out. But when I started taking responsibility for what was going on on my farm and even in my other relationships and asking, what's my role in this and how do I get what I want out of this? You know, it, it really it really shifted things for me. Um, and it was and, you know, and it, when when people were first describing it to me and I, I spent a lot of time being very resistant to the idea that I was the problem. But once I realized that I was the problem, uh, it was actually liberating. It helped me to understand. It, it gave me a sense of control that I hadn't had before, right? Because if if the if you're working with crappy workers who are lazy, and that's the perspective that you have, and that's kind of the end all be all, there's really nothing you can do about that, right? But if the problem is that you didn't give them adequate instructions for how to harvest the carrots and which carrots to harvest. Well, that's actually something you can do about, do something about. That's actually something that you've got control over. Yeah. And, you know, the other side of what you said there too, is that if you have crappy workers, well, I hired them, you know, that's the other side of it. It's like, I hired them. So maybe I need to fire them, you know, and that's, that's part of kind of what I was mentioning about taking the emotion out of it too. Like when I first started farming, it's like, 
oh, I don't want to fire these people. Like, yeah, they're a horrible worker, but I don't want to hurt their feelings because I like them as a person. They're just a horrible worker, you know? But like, that's something I had to come to grips with as I've gone on over the years is like, I'm not going to hire you back. Why? Well, I like you as a person, but you're a horrible worker. Like, that's just how it is. And it's like, and if I decide to keep that person on and they keep doing crappy work, then I'm to blame for that. You know, that's not their fault. That's just who they are, you know? And, and that's not saying that I can't help them try to improve, but some people just don't, some people it's just not their thing. And so it, it, it is, it's super liberating. Once you realize that it's all on you, the owner, then it's like, okay, well then I know what I, what needs to be done. So on a similar note, you had commented to me before we got started today that, that you wanted to talk about what you see coming for the organic industry. You know, because I think this is another one of those things, right? We can spend a lot of time complaining about the larger market forces that are having an impact on local and organic farms. Or we can figure out how we're going to respond to those and take responsibility for our own actions with and, and how we're actually going to react to that. Could you talk a little bit about, about what you see coming down the pike for organic farms? Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. Um, well, I think it's a, I think it's regionally based. Um, I think that every region or every demographic across the country has different constraints that make it different. So I, I'll just speak to like our area here in Southern Oregon, because we don't have a large metropolitan area that, that we support. Um, and so I think in some ways we're kind of the canary in the mine shaft kind of, you know, we're, we're seeing the effects probably sooner than other people see. Um, and we're seeing the consolidation that's happening among distributors and we're seeing, uh, some of the larger farms are just going direct to the stores now, which are cutting out that, that direct line that the smaller farmers have. Um, I think that we're going to see the labor shortage is going to continue. Um, minimum wage is going up. Minimum wage here in Oregon just went up to, I think it's 1025 now. Um, and I know it's going to be up around 12 to $13 um, in the next, next two or three years. Um, so that's a challenge. Um, where is it all going? I, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I think that direct to consumer is really the key um, in the future. What does that look like? Does that mean that I distribute my vegetables through Amazon? Maybe, you know, maybe that's why they bought Whole Foods. I don't know. Um, I, I'm open to looking at anything. Um, I'm really passionate about uh, the the world of digital media um, through, you know, things like Instagram and even Snapchat for the younger generations. Like how can I start utilizing those, those um, networks to reach out and find out what's really going on and, and figure out how to reach my consumer base better. I think that people don't realize the power of, of the internet that they have in their hands with their phones. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. Like there's a lot of direction that we can go as far as direct marketing goes there. Um, I think you're going to see smaller farms have to find value added crops, whatever that is, whether it's processed or just higher dollar crops and niche markets that, and, and, it's like, well, how do you find those niche markets? Well, that's kind of where I think the world of digital media comes into play is like 
going out there on that digital landscape and finding those marketplaces that want your hot sauce. You know, I mean, that's one of the examples we're looking at right now is like, how do we find uh, widespread distribution and tell our story our, and tell our story effectively to these potential buyers of this uh, for our hot sauce? You know, it's like, th- that's, those are the questions I, I ask because we're not, we're not in the organic farming uh, world that we were in 2000, you know, it's not, it's not the world that Elliot Coleman and um, Alice Waters um, created, you know, it's not the, it's not the world that Rodale and Alan Chadwick and, you know, the list goes on and on of all those elder, elder farm farmers and elder movements. Um, it's a, it's a new world we're in right now. And so I, I'm really looking to the future and not trying to get caught in like what I think that the architecture of organic farming should be based on what the past was. I'm, I'm looking forward. Um, I, I hope that doesn't mean virtual carrots. Um, I really am hoping. <laughs> yeah. Some days it does feel like that might be what the future brings. Yeah. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round after we get a word from one more sponsor and we'll be right back. This lightning round and perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I am not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheel cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. Chris, what's your favorite tool on the farm? favorite tool on the farm currently it's the flame leader for sure just because it's cut our cost so immensely and you said that's a whole bed flame leader you're not flaming individual rows with that is that right it's actually a three bed flame leader so it has two wings on the side and one in the middle what's your favorite crop to grow uh currently peppers and why um they taste amazing they make great hot sauce and I just love the way they grow, the uh, structure of the plant, uh, the leaves, everything about them. They're, they're, they, feel, they feel futuristic and ancient at the same time to me. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? <laughs> oh, man, that's a really good question. Um, probably invest in infrastructure sooner. Investing in infrastructure can be so hard when you're a young farmer because you don't necessarily know where things are going in your operation. I think that if I had known then what I know now, I probably would have reached out to more experienced farmers more and really tapped into what they had to say and not just ask them questions, but actually listen to their answers. That's something that I find young farmers do is they ask questions, hoping they get the answers they want to hear. And often they get the answers that are the truth, you know, and so being open to the truth instead of just hearing what you want to hear. Chris, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. 
Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 129 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Jagger. That's J-A-G-G-E-R. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. And by Local Food Marketplace, providing an integrated, scalable solution for farms and food hubs to process customer orders, including online ordering, harvesting, packing, delivery, invoicing, and payment processing. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're a purple pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. 